please welcome to the stage the director and editor of Diego Maradona, Asa Kapalia and Chris King. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations both on an incredible film. Um, I want to ask you first, when you began on this project, before you even looked at a, a minute of archive footage, did you have any questions that you wanted the film to answer about its subject? And did it even end up answering those, or did you discover more questions along the way that suddenly seemed more pressing? Ooh, do you have an answer for that one? Hello, mm. I've got a really short Bye. answer, which is no, I had no, yeah. no questions to ask. I didn't know anything really about him. That's mm. it, really. I, 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 would, I had questions during the film, um, but before the film, I just remember reading a book about his life and just thinking, what a crazy life. Wouldn't it be great one day to make a film about him? And I, when I was a student still, when I was still at the Royal College of Art, I'd, I'd read a book about him, and it was like in the mid to late 90s. And it was, I knew about his background and his drama from a book, but that was it. I just remember thinking there's, there are very few characters that have had that kind of life. And this is before I'd made Senna, before I'd made any kind of docs. Um, did you envisage it as a doc or did you... No, at the time, all I ever knew existed were fiction films, I think. That was all one aspired to do, you know. Um, so that, 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 that was the initial thought was that... Um, and we're both football fans, so I guess... Yeah, and I, and I suppose English people were sort of preconditioned to just dislike Diego Maradona. <laughs> so I knew that much, I and mean, that raises a question, doesn't it, which is why. Why are we supposed to hate him so much? What, what did he do? And I, you know the basics of that, but you have to suddenly examine that, really, and explore why, why that animosity built up so much over the years. During, during the editing, the, the World Cup last year was going on and they, there was that shot where they kept cutting to Diego during a particular Nigeria game, I think it was, and he's kind of giving a finger to the crowd. And I remember while we were editing, kind of looking at it, going, we have to, if we can somehow explain why he's doing that, yeah. then we will have achieved something. And that was quite close to the end, but it was like he ends up in the film, but it was just like the idea that, one, there's a World Cup match on, all these fans were there, they must have travelled around from across the world, and they're not watching the game, they're turning around looking at him. He's a FIFA delegate going like that, and the director keeps cutting to him. So this, that was a, I was thinking, can we ever explain why that was happening? <laughs> and who he is and what he's become for someone to keep wanting to show him, being, making a fool of himself. What was the earliest bit of archive footage then that you saw that particular kind of abrasive star quality coming through? I think the first material on this film that kind of almost started the ball rolling on a project was the idea that um, Maradona's first agent when he was a kid um, in, in Argentina who kind of did the deal to get him his first contract, who did the deal to get him to Boca Juniors and then to Barcelona and then to Naples, two of the biggest deals ever at, at the time, the biggest deals. He had this idea to, to, to make a film about Diego Maradona because he was going to be a star and that, you know, he thought would break America. And so they, 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 he hired two Argentinian cameramen to film him when they were in Barcelona, on the pitch, off the pitch, and then it carried on into Naples uh, until, the, until the agent himself got fired by Diego and then the crew was sort of cancelled. So those tapes, these pneumatic tapes, were rumoured to be out there and our producers heard about them. And, and went pneumatic is that format that they were... Pneumatic is a, like an old kind of... It's still used until quite recently, like in commercials. They was, so they were like 20 minutes long, 
quite thick tapes. Um, about that big. Analog, analog tapes. My very first short film <coughs> was shot on pneumatic. That's how far I've come. Mm. You know, um, so so it's better than VHS, but not as good as Beta or anything like that. And it was in Italy, obviously, in, in Latin America, it was kind of a standard format still, mm. which would have been broadcast quality at the time, I guess. And so these tapes were in a room somewhere in Naples, outside of Naples. And we found the other half of them somewhere in a trunk in Buenos Aires. So that's the first stuff that I think we were yeah. aware of mm -hmm. that made it seem like, okay, we've got access to him um, that no one's seen before. Was there something particular that came across in that footage that wasn't, it, it kind of ran counter to the public perception of him that was coming over in these, uh, these I, highly broadcast appearances? Yeah, I think you, we bathed initially in the joy of just having uninterrupted hour-long tapes of him or 20-minute long tapes of him doing keepy-uppy and framing matches and just going, wow, that's astonishing. Um, he didn't really come across all that well in that material. It was very difficult because it's so random and at that stage you're kind of assessing and you're putting it together into a chronology so that you can kind of work out the degrees. What you could see, even crudely there, was that fresh-faced, quite engaging character in the first reels with that startled look on his face as he started to navigate various bits of the Napoli system. There were lots of scenes of him getting medicals and his arrival, I mean, the beginning of this film now where he arrives into the stadium, actually all part of that process, he went downstairs into the kind of the, the bottom, the basement of the stadium and he had blood tests and lots of things done to him and was made to run on running machines, all with Italians talking across him, people coming in the room, taking photographs of him all the time. And he just looked completely bewildered. And he rather warmed to that. I did. He looked and he smiled and he was sort of, you could tell that he didn't really know what was going on. He didn't know the language at the time. He didn't speak. Yeah. That was something that impressed me. You go then, jump forward 25 tapes. He's speaking fluent Italian and is in the mode and looks really kind of focused. And then skip forward another 30 or 40 tapes and he looked different. You could see the light had gone out of his eyes. Something had happened there. Drinking a lot, singing, you know, doing lots of karaoke, but kind of, there were tapes, sadly, but there were tapes where mm. no one else is laughing and he's just hogging the mic, kind of stuff. So, bit of that. so even just in a kind of a simple iconography, you could see a progression just in those tapes. And that was before we really sat down and started getting into it and working out what each match meant, you know. My, my first instinct was it's not enough. So no, that's my answer. It's not enough. It's fine. It's not good enough. It's not movie. You know, you've got to keep pushing and look for more. And I guess that was the first batch. And there was lots mm. of duplicates and copies. So it looked like there was lots of material, but then you realise it's just been recut by someone and, and redone. And so we wanted to always go back to the masters. There'd be a shot that would end in a very peculiar place and someone's edited it. And so you think, well, that's not a master. Where's the master footage? So that's generally the beginning of the process. We know there are these tapes. We know someone's got them. So there must be more. Mm -hmm. That's what I would think. The people that had the tapes, were they generally happy for you to look through them? Or was there issues of access before you even knew what you actually had? I think they've been trying to flog them for, for years, probably. Um, but what the difference is that our producers were able to do a deal with Diego himself and his lawyer. So they had the tapes, but you need to have his image rights and in order to make a film about him. As we had to do on Senna, as we had to do on Amy, you have to kind of have the image rights of a person to tell their life story. Or everyone will say, is he, is this, is he on board? And the important thing, is he on board? But it doesn't mean he had any kind of final say or final cut or anything like that. Um, so that was the case that we had to do the deal with the image rights and then do the deal for the footage, um, which the producers were able to do, yeah. 
just uh, to contrast it with Senna and Amy, were people more or less keen to speak on the record, given that he was still he's still alive and he's he's obviously not you know anything like the star he, he once was. He definitely. Um, even though he left Naples so long ago, he's been back a couple of times, but a lot of the people haven't seen him since he left, you know, essentially at the end of the film in 91. They are still kind of in awe of him. They're still afraid of him. They don't upset him. So they, no one will do anything if they feel like Diego might hear him might not be happy about it. So that, that, that kind of power still exists. And in Buenos Aires, even people who are kind of been at war with him. But I would say um, in terms of getting people to talk to us, the most difficult film was Amy because that was so soon after she died, and that was so personal, and because she died, her friends were in such pain. So that was the, that was the one that everyone mm. was in tears constantly in every interview. This one's different. This is a slightly more distant kind of experience of making the film uh, on various levels, mainly because he's around, but he's just gone. And he's out there somewhere, and they kind of would talk a lot about this idea of we would we wish we could get back to the old Diego, you know, the, the nice, sweet Diego. And there was that idea that who he is now and who he's become are not the same as who he used to be. That idea came up a lot. And, and eventually it became what Fernando Signorini, the trainer, literally sort of split them, Diego and Maradona. But that concept I, I mm. remember hearing from a few people. And of course, one of the difficulties was there were various, I mean, it's all quite grubby, but he was at the time, I think, suing his own daughters for some business deal that had been put in their name when they were children, and so family relations were brilliant, obviously, no. if that's going on. So there was some reluctance for anybody, I'm not going to say anything until all this is resolved, which we were... Still um, hasn't been. So, <laughs> so we, I'm there trying to kind of get Claudia to be on this film, because I think she's key, and she's like been a sort of significant woman for the best part of his life when he started out, and, they had these two daughters together. As we're trying to do that, and as we're meeting him, I was not aware that they were it gone really badly, nastily legal in the courts. So I'm like, hey, we're making this film. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, I won't say what they said. Well, I'm talking um, about the happy days. Yeah, like, remember? Um, and also, I kind of know you've got a trunk full of tapes and I really would like to see them, so <laughs> can I come in your house? So that took a long time, and our archive producers and I here, but Lena and Fiametta were key on kind of getting the, us access and to build up trust in relationships. But also with Diego himself, it's like, you know, one of my first questions when I met him was to ask him about Claudia. And the first thing, of course, he says, do not mention her name, do not bring up her again. I never want to talk about her ever. And, okay. That was one of my easy questions. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't know. I didn't know also that in the middle of this first time I was meeting Diego in, in Dubai was when he was recognizing his son. That's what kicked off a lot of the arguments because the daughters have always been told all their life that there is no other son, it's a lie. Next minute, next minute. After 30 years, he recognizes a son, so for 30 years they've been lied to. So that was all happening while we were trying to interview them all. And um, I had no idea that it would be in the film. I didn't think, I'm not interested in his personal life, I don't care who a footballer sleeps with. But then actually it became apparent that this is important for this film. Given that that kind of information's only coming to light when you sit down with the interviewees, he doesn't tell you, and even and discover what you know, <laughs> what they've actually got in their in their yeah. trunk or in their bottom drawer or wherever, the, the the production pipeline must have been crazy on this because you're kind of coming back thinking you've retrieved something, and in actual fact, it's just opened up new always always new. I mean, that's always a good thing. I think mm. you want it to be like that. You always want you open one door hoping there's going to be ten more, because. 
we just need to keep digging and keep investigating the story and investigating the characters. And there's always more out there. Uh, but it was like that, you know. That it was a complicated one. We're in Clerkenwell editing. Um, Diego was living in Dubai. The story takes place in Naples, in Italian. And uh, all of the contributors are in Buenos Aires. And so it was like nothing really happened here. Um, so we started off doing a few interviews in London, but you realize this is a film that is every element of it is abroad. And so you can't just go off. Like with Amy, I could meet people every other day, just somewhere in town, and I'd find somewhere to kind of connect and keep the conversation going. But here it would be, it'd be sometimes a year between interviews with Diego. Mm. And the exciting thing about that process is one of our, our Lena, our great researcher, um, Latin American researcher, was tasked with just ringing a few people who we felt were on the periphery of the story, one of whom was Fernando Signorini, who at the time was doing some work in Mexico. So she had a series of phone calls where he was in a hotel room in Mexico and she was in Buenos Aires, I think. I don't think she was in London. We, were, we were both in Buenos Aires on the phone doing and, the interviews at 2 a.m. because and that was just the kind of behind. yeah it was just a box ticked yeah I spoke to him he's kind of an interesting guy yeah whatever and then we started to listen to that when they were transcribed and brought into the the cutting room and realized this guy's brilliant and he's a trove of information and a much more significant character than we had ever assumed or guessed and so he was recontacted more interviews were set up with him suddenly we began to spot him in footage once we've got a photograph, and then all of a sudden, this character who's going to become quite important to the film just emerges. And that's kind of just a natural thing that came out of a kind of due diligence process that went on about speaking to people. So that's all really exciting. That cold case kind of feel that goes on where you unearth a lead and follow it and find something that's is fantastic. Good with the character, and it's equally good when somebody says, oh, I've, I've got a couple of tapes, and that turns out to be something brilliant and gold as well, which was the case with... Gennaro Montori, the, the, the ultra. ultra. Quite a character. So uh, in kind of Latin America, you have these fans, leaders of the fans. And in his case, he, he was in charge of one end of the Napoli Stadium. And he would direct the singing or direct how they're going to, you know, when the players run out on the pitch, you'll do this and a giant flag will come down or they'll set off flares or whatever. So he was always kind of doing shows for the players. He, he, they, they have quite a lot of power. They... they He's in the dressing room when they win the championship. That's how powerful he is. So he had, he's also a little bit crazy. Um, so he uh, exists in a kind of universe that I can't really explain. We went to see him in Naples. He had an office that was a perfect square. So when you spoke, everything echoed. It just continued echoing for minutes. And so every conversation was like, I'm going mad. Um, and he had tapes. He had VHS tapes, a lot of them, a lot of stuff on the pitch, off the pitch. But, you know, Diego coming around to tea. Like, everything looked like a kind of early Goodfellas film, sort of early Scorsese, it all felt like. And the shot, particularly shot of him, the really quiet shot on his own where he's contemplating what's happened at the Christmas party, that came from Montori. So that sort of material he had access to on VHS that no one's ever seen, no one's ever been able to communicate with him and do a deal with him. And, we, and Fiametta, the other brilliant archive producer, was able to do it. And so he was great. Mm. There was a lot of stuff that came from the bowling alley is another one of his scenes, you know, stuff like that, where Diego was always talking about how impossible it was to go out. But he was like, how do we show that he can't go out? And that was one scene where, you know, you could just see, he just gets told, oh, there's a bowling alley. Do you want to go bowling? Yeah, let's go bowling. And that happens. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting, you, you say the story is set in Naples. Clearly there's enormous parts of his life before and after that you could have equally focused on or incorporated. What was it about those years that made you think, okay, so this is, this is the part of the story that's gonna explain the rest of it? Uh, definitely the fact that it was shot deliberately handheld in a kind of documentary style. It, it, he was being followed in and out of rooms, he was followed onto the pitch on a lot of matches, and he, the, the, the camera was on, right down at pitch side. It felt like there was coverage of that time there. Um, <clears throat> we did do due we went all the way back to the beginning, we cut his story in the first instance from his first club um, uh, as a kid, all the way through going to Argentinos Juniors, which was his first signing, and then going to Boca Juniors, and then the 1978 Boston, World yeah. Cup. It included <clears throat> a brief history of the Falklands War and how that affected, and the military junta, and the interplay between politics and football. I mean, it was quite a comprehensive, it was at least an hour before we got to Naples, and then Naples was a certain chunk, and then afterwards we did follow his life in quite crude form, but as he left and went to other clubs and then really in a spiral of addiction, culminating in that interview that you see at the end there where he's grossly overweight and crying. Um, that was part of a, a part Cuba of his life. as well, we got to Cuba. A bit of Cuba and all that. And we had internal screenings where we just press play and have a few people come in. And every time we did that, people would say, Naples is, I mean, and we had an instinct. We knew that the mm -hmm. film was, it was it got more interesting there because you were you were able to look at him. The rest of the stuff was a bit scrappy. You were reliant on footage from TV, other TV stations, and you didn't have that level of coverage. Barcelona, it got interesting um, because these guys were following him. So we were getting close to him now. It was feeling like we were getting inside his life rather than just watching it as a spectator. But when you watch it, you realise that his time at Barcelona, although it was dramatic, it was more or less the same that happened at Napoli, just in a short space of time, where he arrived to a huge fanfare, then things sort of went wrong, and, uh, and then he left under a cloud. And then he went to Naples, and he arrived with a huge fanfare, and then... Uh, and then but he became uh, the best player in the world, though, isn't he? And he won the and, World Cup. And the key thing is, thing. after he left, he joined, I think, Sevilla or somewhere, and it was the same thing there. There were still European clubs who were willing to pay a little bit of money for a big name for a season or two, and he joined those, and there was a huge fanfare, and then things went wrong, and he would get drug tested, and yeah. so he was in this cycle, and so the most interesting cycle of all those cycles was Naples, because that's where the real highs were hit, the World Cup 86 in particular, the Scudetto, another Scudetto, and that's where we felt the beginnings of everything that was gonna destroy him were, were set. Um, and so it became, we, we saw that as a paradigm for his life where the best and worst of his life was, was represented there and that gave us a kind of structure. So. And I think what comes across really powerfully is this sense that he's hurtling into that chapter of his life. I mean, the, the film even begins with a car chase, right? Mm. Did that footage always look like a car chase when you first found it or did, how much did it have to be, uh, you know, quite adjusted? a mad bit of driving. It yeah. Is, but it is, it is Naples driving. That's normally Naples. But that's a whole tape. That's the thing. That's a whole tape of just that car <laughs> screaming through the streets. Opening the doors. Just that <laughs> random time. Like, just, just like, no, no, let's go. All right, I'll open the door for something. It's getting hot. Um, and there, yeah, there was, I mean, there was loads of coverage of that. They were obviously very excited that someone had actually forked out the money to get Diego there. And so his guys were filming everything. And um, so that, 
yeah, it always made me laugh because it was a crazy intro. When we were in pre, when we'd come from Barcelona to Naples, it always marked a point where the cool elite European club had been ditched, and suddenly <laughs> he was in heading for this. And so once we'd made the decision to focus on Naples and just really reduce, just get some key elements, see little dots of his life leading up to that. Um, we thought then let's try and have some fun with it because it is just crazy. It took quite a long time to crack that. I mean, it was 45 minutes that section, that five minute drive beforehand. In the previous cut where we just watched it and we, you know, we have those screenings where it's not working and everyone is like comes out a bit miserable and you know, oh, God. <laughs> and then we're like, we're gonna have to do something radical. And I think that was the one, let's throw the audience in there, let's just get to Naples during that journey and. Chris is brilliant with music, and he found this cue that just works, and it just, it, it, um, yeah, hopefully kind of starts you off with certain energy of what you expect Maradona's life to be. But it also gave it then a journey to where we end up at the ending is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, it was one of the challenges when we were even mixing it. Mm. We literally were mixing two cues, which I've never really done before to that state, because there's such a complicated sequence to mix. But we ended up doing this one, and we tried something else, um, and it was like we had to do the whole film and then go back and revisit the opening reel to say, okay, where do we start? We've got, we've got to go with this. Um, but it seems obvious now, and a lot of people really like the opening, but it was like... It, it was really... quite a sort of melancholic, elegiac score underneath that scene. It was a bit longer and, and driven by the sync and yeah. actuality a little bit more with music that just gently built underneath it. And it had a very different feel, but it did feel a bit like... That was more us imposing a kind yeah. of melancholic feel, a sad feel, a tragic feel onto his life before anything had actually happened. Yeah. So suddenly going, no, let's go bang and go in with massive 80. energy, youth and All the young girls and in our crew were like, what is this music? And we're like, well, this is great, <laughs> this is our generation. Yeah. <laughs> Should open this to questions from the floor. We've got a couple of moving mics. Please raise your hand if there's something you'd like to ask. Yeah, let's start, uh, st start there. Uh, mic's just coming down. What was Maradona like in real life when you interviewed him? So um, I met him. I met him about four or five times. I went to his house in Dubai. Um, he was living on a giant palm tree, man-made palm tree. Um, he, he was the first meeting is always the kind of one that you've, if you've heard anything or ever seen a film about people making a film about Maradona, it's always like the struggle to get to Maradona. And the first meeting was like that. It took five days to get in the house, and in the end, we were there for five minutes. It wasn't very great. We wasted a lot of money with lots of... Everyone wants to meet Maradona. So loads of crew turned up, and, and it was a disaster. And I was like, OK, maybe this is going to be much more like Senna and Amy. We don't actually have a central character, actually, to talk to. He's not going to be available to us. So we went away, and we worked for quite a while. Second meeting, um, I made sure the crew was much smaller. It was just myself and Lena, the translator, and I was sound recording myself. And... You know, you go in there, he, he wakes up at four in the afternoon, he comes downstairs. I think he'd been up all night watching Argentinian football or something. But that's, he's a nighttime person, always has been. I think he's always struggled to sleep, actually. So he wakes up four in the afternoon, comes downstairs, sits on his sofa, was watching football on TV. He was watching it upstairs, he just came downstairs and carried on watching. Uh, when he went to the loo, I muted it because the volume was on. And then we started talking. And then once he started talking, he kind of got engaged and he was nice. But the first time I would say, he was a little bit tired or slurring his words, and I kept thinking, is this ever going to be usable? Um, but we just kind of started to engage, and it just seemed to be like he was getting interested. And, and I was like, can I come back tomorrow? 
And we came back the next day, and he was in much better form. He was, like, ready for us. And so when you hear his voice, that's from our interviews, um, I would say he was very charming. He was very, he was very charismatic. Um, he can be very funny. When he's in a good mood and his eyes light up and he starts smiling, he's, he's very sweet. He's actually a really nice guy. Um, I think, you know, for his age and what he's put his body through, I think he's in a good... He, when I saw him in, I guess it was 2017 and 18 now, he was in a good place. Um, and, I, and I slightly changed my opinion. I thought by being in that house in Dubai, at first I thought, how sad he's living in Dubai. And then I thought, maybe it's kind of good that he's not in a huge city like Buenos Aires or in Paris or, you know, in Naples or somewhere, because the temptation is just too much for someone like him. Because I do think he's, you know, I don't think he's in recovery. He's an addict who has to abstain, probably. Um, you know, it's one of those situations. I don't know if he's ever really had help to stop whatever he was, um, you know, getting himself into. So we went away, and then the, the na nature of the process is we do an interview, and then how long before we actually get to... Re so much later. Three months might go by for it all to be that. transcribed. There was one that, that was 1970, and then I think there was a... I think it there was gets least translated, and then it has to go into the AVID, and then we have it subtitled, and only then do we... Oh, is that what we were talking about? Because at that case, I was having live translation, which wasn't to be trusted, really. So as the interviews developed, each time I went, I brought another crew member... And then by the end of it, we had this mad setup where he sat on his sofa, not watching TV anymore. We've moved on. He's talking to me. I'm sitting here. I've got Lena, who's translating. I've brought my sound recordist from Naples, who I've been working with on all the interviews in Italy. He was a Napoli fan. He was there in the stadium when Diego was playing. So they got along really well, and it kept him happy and kept him amused, and they could chat away. I had um, a phone ringing Buenos Aires on WhatsApp to Laura, who understands the very specific type of Argentinian Spanish that Diego Maradona speaks. Most Spanish speakers wouldn't understand what he's saying. He's got a very particular way of talking. So Laura's on the phone in Buenos Aires listening and then calling me back on another phone that's in my ear so I can understand live translation. <laughs> because I've only got three, hour, three times three hours interviews. I've got nine hours of him contractually. We'd used up a few. His attention span is 90 minutes. Just saying. So you, I never got three hours. I just got, can I come back tomorrow? And we'd get our three hours. So by the ending, it was like, okay, this is going well. He's not having to wait. He's very impatient. He doesn't like being waited on. Um, and we were getting somewhere. I felt I saved one interview up. The final interview was going to be done after he'd watched the film. And then I was going to interview him again because of, he hasn't seen this stuff. He hasn't seen the film yet. And I wanted to know how he would react to everything in the film. But then the, the final attempt to meet him was like that first one, where we were waiting, waiting, trying to chase him around the world. And then I don't know if he was never interested. Mm. I don't know if he's afraid of what's in the film. But for whatever reason, we never could pin him down. His family have seen it. Everybody else, the Signorini, everyone else that you hear. They've all, I think, reached out to him and said, should probably have a look at this. You know, it's going to actually be in the cinemas quite soon, and you should have an idea about what the rest of the world. Also, is. they think it's important for him to see while he's alive. His daughters were saying this is really important for him to see while he's around. Yeah. Um, but that—that's the classic thing with Maradona. He—he he, so he I I the person that I met who was away from the machine was really nice. I don't bring a camera. Part of the reason I didn't want him to perform, and because occasionally you could hear his voice when he starts going high pitched and he starts. You know, you ask him a question about his son, and he'll tell you a brilliant answer, but it'll be about Seb Blatter or Platini. And you go, that's really great, but that's not for this movie. Um, so that, that was one of the big challenges. I think that was one of the things that came out of those first interviews, where there was a lot of charming stuff, 
but you realised there, there was a version of his life that he'd completely internalised and rationalised and everything was fine and he'd made some mistakes but that was okay and he was glossing over things and, and he, anything, you know, the drugs, well, yes, I did drugs. It's Don't a do bad drugs. mistake. Don't do yeah. drugs. Tell your children, never do drugs. <laughs> Next, and move on. So it was there but it was the surface. I think it took another two interviews to go in and ask him to be a, quite brave and say, um, no, sure, I'll, actually, let's stick with that and ask you another one and go in and, and return to the subject and push through a little bit through his protective barriers that, that we began to get to the truth. Having said that, in those early interviews, I think he did just describe changing his style of football when he moved to Italy, which immediately was fascinating to think mm. about how his brain worked and that, the way that he changed his... He's very smart. That was an, an immediately a brilliant insight into him that wasn't just about football, it was about his personality as well. And there were numerous other little incidents, him meeting the Camorra, I think, and sort of being bewildered by that and taking the whole thing not seriously. That had to be returned to again later on. But there were, little, there were, there were a series of quite good, good things that got us in there. And the admission that he really only went to Naples because he was broke, that was a bit of a revelation. So good stuff came out of it. Some of the important things we began to realise had been fairly glossed over and would have to be re-examined later. Was there a particular line of questioning that he really bristled at in the moment? I think it was that final interview, which in my mind is still the penultimate interview, still the other, uh, was when we had to deal with you know, women, the, really the drugs, like that typical week. Mm. Just tell me, just tell me. So we know you're, you're doing coke, but you're playing. So how does that work? And then he just went through this, mm. well, you know, Sunday, we play football, we'd win, go out. Monday, I'm out partying. Tuesday, I'm out partying. Wednesday, I'm out partying. Thursday, I'd start training. Friday, I'd calm down a bit and I'd sweat it all off. And then I'd be ready again for the weekend. And that, I don't know, I never heard him talk like that before. Right. So that all came out of kind of pushing the table. I, I know you, yeah, we know you did drugs. Because he would also say, I was doing so much. But you realise that can't be right. You can't be doing that much and be playing. And then we realised he was sort of going, that's what he was doing in Cuba, which is a crazy amount a day. So it's amazing, but it's, like, it's not actually for the film. Let's go back to like, the detail of how, how it worked. That, the, the going to see the Camorra, what happened, the sun was a tricky one. I think the sun, what did you actually, you know, did, you knew you had a sun. You knew you had a sun in Naples, like, just on the other side of town. That was the one where I think he got annoyed because I kept going back on it. Because I was asking, so what was, what was your relationship with the woman? What was going on between you and her? What did you think of her? What did you think of him? What did you... And that was the point when he just said, you know what, you've got a nerve. Like, asking me these questions to my face, you've got real nerve. Now, I've got my live translation, so normally when he's talking, I'm like nodding and smiling. And, <laughs> and then, oh, oh shit. <laughs> and then um, there was quite a long pause. Well, I'm like... Um, you carry on, where are you going to go with this thing? <laughs> um, and then he does sort of go, but for that I respect you, because most people would not have the nerve to ask me these questions to my face. So that, that was one point when he kind of got annoyed by my going back over things that he wasn't con com comfortable talking about, but also when he did go on a tangent, I was just interrupting him, saying, that, that's great, that's great, story. it's not really what I want to talk about, let's mm. go back to it, and he's not used to it, someone interrupting him, I guess. Mm. Another question? Uh, yeah, the back there. Wonderful documentary. Um, but at the end, it says, after 30 years, he finally acknowledged him. And I'm wondering, all those years, the, the 
mother of the son must have been saying, this is your dad, this is your dad. At what point, I mean, how did that happen? How it's did really he... convoluted. There was obviously a big paternity case that rumbled on for years and years and years from the, from the year that the baby was born. I think she launched a paternity case. Um, Maradona's lawyers just kept on uh, delaying, 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 delaying. He refused to take a test. Refused to take a DNA test. Uh, and in fact, I don't think that that was legal even in Italy at the yeah, time. Then it became legally <coughs> admissible, but he still refused. And so it all just kind of rumbled on for years and years. And he got on with his troubles, basically, and then left Italy completely. He just denied it. Yeah. The whole time he was there, he just denied. And he had his daughters, and he always said to them, it's all a made-up story. It's just somebody who was trying to get money out of me. You know, um, I didn't even know her. Well, I may have met her, but it wasn't whatever, and all that stuff. And then uh, Diego Jr. made repeated attempts when he became a young adult to try and get in contact and was rebuffed repeatedly. And then, I mean, this is a crazy story, and it was in the film. It went on for 30 years, so, you know, it took him, like, 50, he was age 15, and Diego was playing golf somewhere, so he climbs in, and in the longer version, we went into that, and, you know, it's, it was an interesting thing of, at what age do children need to get to before you can start hearing their voices? Because I interviewed Junior, and I interviewed the daughters, and it was like, about 13, maybe 12, yeah. and then you can hear grown-up voices. But the answer is this, and this is the craziest point of connection, in the end, Diego Jr., who'd become a, a quite successful, I think, second division... Not even that. Third division Italian footballer, was invited, because he was the celebrity uh, illegitimate son of Diego Maradona, to appear on uh, Come Dancing, Argentina. <laughs> so he went to Argentina deliberately, knowing that his father would see the show, God, danced on it, <laughs> and and was interviewed every Saturday night by the host saying, so, you're Diego Maradona's son? Yes, I am. <laughs> and he'd look out and he'd say, yeah, and what would you say to your dad if you met him? Well, and he would talk to him directly. And he said that after uh, six or seven weeks of this, got to the semi-finals or so, he got uh, a text message after the show saying, I'm ready, come and see me. I mean, that's me. literally what's happened before that scene. And that scene there, that's why there are all the cameras there, because... At the time, Diego Jr. was there. It's an enormous and a brilliant story, a crazy story, but and we had a version of it at one stage in the film, but it's so complicated, it, it couldn't survive. And it wasn't about Diego, it was about Diego Jr., so it had to be cut. So I hope that's a sort of rough answer you I understand that it's not fully explored in the, yeah. the film. Uh, let's go to the question uh, here. Thank you. Hi. Um, firstly, I'm in awe of the editorial job that was required in order to put something like this together. Um, and I was wondering, did any of the experience that you had in creating Senna and Amy lend itself to, as part of a learning curve towards being ready to tackle something like this? Or each time it's so completely new, it's like starting from scratch again. You're literally finding your way through it. Or the skills and things you learn and pick up. Definitely, there is, you start to have an instinct for, yeah, you have an instinct that you can trust now. You've done this twice, and so you know to look at material with, I don't know how to describe it, you have to have a very open view, and you watch it, and you let it pass in front of your eyes, but Asif's particularly good at spotting something and saying, that's a, that's a scene. 
mm. out of something which may feel like quite banal 20 minutes of home video footage. That's the scene there. Um, so we know that we're never just looking for the surface. We're always looking for things that are going to play cinematically, visually, on a big screen. Uh, the process of investigating and then on doing all the interviews. And finding the narrative. We know that the hunt is always on from day one. It's finding, trying to find something that's going to feel, have a compelling narrative, which will work as an independent piece of filmmaking, as a piece of cinema, but is also faithful and honest and true to the character. And, and we also know by now as well, after those first two films, that we want the film to sort of feel like the character. That's part of the process. So I think we intuited all those things that, you know, Senna had all the details of his life, but it felt slightly spiritual in, in, in the way that it was constructed. And Amy had a lot of emotion and, and love and heartbreak. It was oozing through all of it in the way it was structured. We knew that we had to find that in all this disparate kind of material. I think what's interesting is that Senna was a tough one for me because that's the one where we were finding the style. Amy was different because it was so raw, as I said, and it was so close to her mm -hmm. dying and it heavy. And this one was a mixture of the two, weirdly enough. It's like a bit of Senna because it's this kind of sporting hero element and a sense of place is so important here. But also you've got the kind of addiction thing, which I have to say, it's a tricky one because we spent so much time on Amy dealing with it. I think both of us were, you know, that went on for 20 years. Yeah. And we were like, do we want to go there? And actually, that's maybe one of the reasons, rightly or wrongly, we decided not to go into that long after he leaves Naples because he, for us, stops being a footballer then. <clears throat> and the reason why he's famous is because he was a great footballer and then his problems began. So it was partly... For us, it was like a learning experience of the other films. I have to make mention as well, because we've got the same team of, you know, Chris King, editor, myself, the producer, James. Um, Paul Ensby is here, someone who's our colorist. So, you know, Chris and I pretty much are, are kind of there writing it. And Paul, who's a colorist, who, where are you, Paul? There he is, right there back there. Oh, so, don't be shy. So he's it. like the nearest we have to a DOP. So he was the person on Senna and on Amy and on Maradona who takes this crappy footage that we come up with and has to somehow make it look interesting or make it look nice and put all of the elements with, you know, the, the, the composer Antonio Pinto. So the thing that's happened, I suppose, is we have a team that we know mm. we can come together and everyone takes it seriously. The sound designer, Stephen Griffiths and Andy Shelley are the sound team. So they come in and they, you know, this footage is all mute, most of it, or there's like crowd noise. Chris starts off by putting in lots of effects. Like day one. That, was, that, was, that actually was a, a learning thing, because we learned on Senna that a lot of the footage, sports footage, comes with commentary written um, all over it. And it's just whatever's going on in the day. You know, the helicopter shots, the beautiful helicopter shots at Senna were just Italian commentators saying, well, it's going to be a big day today. And, you know, as soon as you strip that sound out, they achieve this kind of their soaring over there, and they're elegant and cinematic and glorious. And so... That's a simple trick, and literally from day one, we were stripping out the sound. A lot of the, the, the rushes were mute, but all the football matches, we realised we're going to have to augment the sound and start it. So we were literally spotting in every kick, every tap, every elbow. We knew that we wanted it to feel hmm. violent and visceral and to Slightly get back to this. hyper real. So it's a hyper, hyper real thing, but that was done right from the day one. And then, as Asif says, we knew we had this great sound team who were going to come in a year down the line and 
bring us and take all that work and turn it into something that was as spectacular as you heard tonight? I think, I think, um, I don't think Jamie's here, but our online editor always says that when Chris delivers the cuts, there are far more effects and cuts <laughs> in, in our docs than there are in most features, actually. There's a hell of a lot of technical stuff going on that hopefully looks absolutely natural when you watch the film, but no, no one shot is just the way it turned up off the shelf, you know. Everything has been has to be worked on and manipulated, or something's mm. happened there uh, within our, our kind of brilliant yeah. team. It's to, they're very technical films. To make it look really rough, you have to put an enormous amount of polish on. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was it's all eight K to start with. Yeah. Was there a particularly outrageous adjustment that was made, like some it, it, enormous sort of repurposing of footage? It just it, it, it looked very very different. I, I can think of one. Can you think of anything? Go on. The, Paul, I don't know, are you able to speak about, you know the, the, you know the vice calls in the film when they turn up? Oh, yeah. If I'm not wrong, there, there's a shot of a very huge kind of hill, which is actually the volcano, uh, it's Vesuvius. And then as we come round, we see Naples at night. Uh, Paul, can you remember what that started off looking like? I think that might have been day. It was a day shot, yeah. <laughs> It was a day or dusky. I know. I remember it's actually reversed. Number one. Right. Yeah. It's a reverse shot. It, put, it went from the city and then tracked around and went into darkness behind the volcano into shadow. Yeah. So I think that was reversed. So it was a reveal. Add most of those street lights are added. It's turned into right. night. So a lot of the stuff we end up doing is taking footage that you find and saying, well, how do we want to tell the story? What are we trying to say? So in this case, it was like you hear some voices and it's a reveal. So all of the stuff that one would do normally, we're trying to do it with footage that I haven't shot, but we're basically figuring out how to tell the story. And yeah, that became a night shot because it was, he's talking at 3.30 in the morning. Um, there were various shots where there were, because it was an analog format, you'd get dropout. So frames would go missing. The image would go be playing and then it would go down and up and go down and up and go down and up for a frame at a time. So you literally had to go along, cut out that frame, blow it up, reposition it. So it's like restoration work. So a lot of that is happening as well as we're going along. I mean, it's incredibly yeah, painstaking. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It makes me groan to think and back nobody in those days. Well, you shouldn't no. care. It's not no. important. Obviously, if it works, it shouldn't matter. It should just, that's, it feels like a documentary. You just found the shots. You just joined them together. Easy peasy. Uh, <laughs> bloody hell, it's not. I think we have time for one more question before we finish. Um, let's go here. And then one at the back. Maybe. Oh, yeah, okay. So yeah, great, yeah, great job, by the way. What comes across in the film for me is there's sort of the links to the shady characters, the drugs, the prostitution, but there was nothing, there didn't appear to be anything that, you know, no advisors or agents that would, would try and save him. I mean, was there no one trying to help him or is he just, was he just sort of single-minded and refused it? This is another age, isn't it? The way they played football, the way they lived, the way they... He had agents, he had an agent. Uh, I think the first sign of trouble he got out of Dodge, didn't he? <laughs> you know, he? He ran off to Buenos Aires because he was the one in trouble. Um, so when things really kicked off, I don't think he had an advisor around. He but didn't have security guards, as you can see. There was a suspicion that when he makes that phone call that you can hear, his agent was in the room with him waiting for the delivery. So I don't think he was very good. Signorini was but really the only guy who clean. would say, you've got you to do something, try to find clinics for him. I think it's worth saying, though, that 
There was a good reason why Diego resisted, and that was that at some stage, I think around the end of Naples, it may be just after, he did go to a, a really eminent psychotherapist in Switzerland, Switzerland yeah. and spent a weekend with him <coughs> as a sort of induction into a therape therapeutic process, and then flew back to Buenos Aires on the Monday, and the psychotherapist came out and had a press conference. Did a TV show. the world's press everything that Diego had divulged over the week. He was being interviewed at the airport. He, like, they were chasing him at the airport when he was trying to get them, when he was there. So every, even Such the doctors a, started you know, yeah, giving Yeah, a grotesque yeah. breach of trust that Diego obviously just said, well, you can't trust those people. I'm never going to do it. So he's never, ever really got proper help or cure for that. So I mean, that's the nearest what we show. You know, mm. He actually is locked up by his family eventually because they just think it's got to happen. That's His family, in the end, yeah, sectioned him, had him actually sectioned and, um, and in, a, in a psychiatric hospital as well, not even in a rehab place. Um, I think that was the thing that finally forced him to start taking stock. Because that, for, for me, the managerial, man, managerial career, even though he was managing Messi and all of that, it was just the same cycle of great hope, he's going to win, oh, it doesn't work out, he starts arguing, swearing at all the journalists, and, and then he gets fired. And um, it wasn't... It wasn't it didn't add up to anything. Yeah, and not only that, we did realise if we don't work out an ending to this film, it's just we're going to be cutting it inexorably. It's going to be like painting the fourth bridge, you know. We're just going to have to keep going back, keep adding, keep adding. So we were quite firm we in trying to make a brutal end, yeah. But you, you mentioned Scorsese earlier, and this idea of the hard cut from Napoli to almost unrecognisable figure mm. shambling up the corridor. There's a raging bull quality to that, I think, where you're taken aback by how much the guy's changed. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a funny thing. When we're making these films, the references are movies, mm. you know. So the opening was like French Connection or Italian Job or something like that. And when he walks into the stadium, it's kind of gladiator and the shot when he's all on his own and lonely and thinking is Long Good Friday. And, you know, and then this cut, we had various references we talked about. It was a yeah. bit Jake LaMotta, wasn't it? It, it was. was did, I mean, the note from James, the producer, was always like, you've got to start with the ending at the front, like, like um, Raging Bull. But I didn't want to do that. We, we pushed back on that one. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, how we were trying something out there because we did at one point go through all the stages that went between that shot when he leaves and he gets arrested in Argentina and the shot of him ending up in, in a psychiatric ward. But we just thought it, it doesn't... It, for us, it was interesting, but it didn't add. And then we just thought, what if we just do something really hard and just say that? It was, Im it was immediately That's really where we exciting. ended up. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. It was always something that we thought <laughs> yeah. was exciting, but maybe it just leaves everyone wanting more. But maybe that's what you meant to do. I don't know. It's all out there on YouTube. You could go and study Diego Maradona's. Everything that he's done, it's going to be on some tabloid TV show. As we speak, it'll be on TV somewhere in Argentina, you know. Um, but we, we, we thought we'd try something. Well, we're going to leave everyone wanting more now. That is sadly all we've got time for. But okay. Chris, thank, thank you. you.